Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the Members Forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKenty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on August 10th, 2021. Today on the program, I present to you artist, musician, and blogger Tessa Lena. Her blog, Tessa Fights Robots, presents controversial issues in a very non-confrontational way. The emphasis on love, healing, and compassion create a foundation for discourse that is difficult to argue with. While clearly passionate about issues such as healthcare freedom and big tech censorship, as well as a concern for the many signs of a coming technocratic and transhumanist dystopia, Tessa's messaging has a way of tackling the big issues without attacking or blaming, without shame or judgment, for those who will not or cannot see the world as she does. Perhaps her unique approach comes from the lived experience of growing up in post-Soviet Russia. She remembers what it was like to transition from totalitarianism to freedom. Though the change was far from seamless, her writing portrays the feelings of one who knows better than to take freedom for granted. Her background as an artist also gives her a refreshing perspective you will not get from the many political pundits, armchair philosophers, and independent journalists who all seem to have an axe to grind. Tessa has no skin in their game. She feels no need to engage in the left-right paradigm and argue the superiority of her chosen team. Yes, she stands up to bullying in all its forms, but she does so with the understanding that the bully contains some secret motivation, some hidden fear, some unhealed trauma that causes them to act out the way they do. While displaying the unwavering ability to engage in critical thinking concerning her subject matter, Tessa's world understands that emotional health ultimately drives the bus. She writes more like a poet than a politico. Though her posts are very political, her approach provides a refreshing escape from the often contentious world of the blogosphere. Hidden within her narrative may just be the key to winning that fight with robots, to escaping the postmodern machine world we have all become so accustomed to, and to beating back the forces of technocracy and transhumanism that seek to purge us of that which makes us human. Stay tuned for this conversation that will cover all of that and more. If you haven't already, go to www.tessafightsrobots.com to find more about Tessa, her music, and her musing, or go directly to www.tessa.substack.com for her blog. If you like what you're hearing, please fight the robot by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with your social media networks. We rely on listeners like you to distribute this information as many social media algorithms, generated by artificial intelligence, are designed to suppress information that reconnects us with what it means to be human. As always, go to www.theshiftnow.com and click on the free content tab or sign up to the newsletter to keep abreast of all news and information produced by Doug McKenty Studios. 
I want to give a big welcome to Tessalena for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the 87th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm happy to be joined today by Tessa Lena. She is an artist, musician, and blogger who is currently living in New York City. Tessa, how are you doing today? I am very good. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about your story is that you uh, were actually raised in, in the Soviet Union, right? So you have experience with uh, living under a type of totalitarianism that most Americans haven't, haven't had to uh, endure. Well, I have been raised mostly at the ruins of the Soviet Union, but uh, I remember that time of the transition and mm-hmm. the... Free, the celebration of free expression and everybody just having this spiritual upheaval. And actually now I realize that that sound of spiritual freedom was probably the sound of multinational corporations moving in and clearing the market. <laughs> but, you know, like nobody really thought about it this way and the feeling was extremely sincere. So to me, it is mind boggling to see the absolute axioms of my formative years, such as free expression is good. Censorship mm. is bad. Like those things are suddenly flushed into the toilet in America out of all places. So to me, it's extremely bizarre and surreal. Yeah. I mean, how crazy it, it's been actually even uh, for me as an American to see almost a celebration from a lot of people uh, this, as the censorship has moved in for sure. Uh, it's just so wild that uh, Americans seem to have lost their principles. I mean, that's the way I see it actually is that you know, there should be certain principles about boundaries that the government's not allowed to cross in terms of your individual uh, decision-making process about your private life. And uh, people have have lost a lot of that. I mean, maybe it's because they haven't experienced what happens when those boundaries, you know, don't exist. It seems like, well, it's certainly starting to happen now. And I think it's going to get worse here in the next couple of years. Well, I think there has been a lot of work put into people thinking that way. So it sure. didn't just happen coincidentally. There has been a lot and a lot and a lot of work put into that. And also, I think you're right. People always, I think whenever somebody welcomes censorship, they always assume that it's the other guy who's going to be censored. Yeah. Like, nobody thinks that tomorrow their own precious opinion might be censored. But that's usually what happens because today it could be no, ultra-right, even though today I think anybody who says anything slightly dissident is immediately branded as ultra-right, even if that person has nothing to do with anything right. But right. that's just how they're branding it. But people assume that they're going to be the ones in charge of the machine they're building. But usually the machine just goes all over them. Yeah, absolutely. I guess before we get too far into it, do you want to just give people a little bit about your history in your own words and, and kind of describe what turned me on to your work is, is the blog. I know you've been working on that at least for a couple of years now, um, but why don't you go back? Because I know you've been doing music for a long time, too. Well, I've been doing music and writing for a while, and now I'm actually realizing that I always ask people on my podcast and say, oh, talk about yourself. And now I am realizing the burden of it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I <know>. <laughs> so I guess, well, I'm Russian and therefore dangerous. And right. I have been doing music since I was five. I did classical piano and then uh, I was in bands. And now I have a band called Tessa Makes Love, which preceded my blog that is called Tessa Fights Robots, which Right now, I write on Substack, 
uh, I started doing that after the pandemic. And my reasoning was that previously, I've been writing on my own website that is also called testifiedrobots.com. But I've noticed uh, that my domain was severely downgraded anytime I would say something about big tech, which is a lot what I was writing about anyway. Mm -hmm. So I knew that if I start talking about the pandemic, like forget about it, I'll be on page number 1000 million, like nobody will find me. So I figured, why don't I just take the Substack thing and write there? And then uh, I started talking about the pandemic and I've been pretty vocal because I just could not stand the lies. That was just too painful to stand the lies. And okay. I'm not saying answers obviously because nobody does like to the full extent but at the very least uh making my opinions known i think that's important because otherwise they're just eating us yeah i've been loving uh reading your blog and you've been actually quite busy on that lately i, I invited you on the show and then i was like well i need to you know keep up with what she's doing it seemed like you were producing a new blog post every day so <laughs> congratulations <laughs> on that it's great to see somebody that's working so hard to spread your ideas. And, and the thing that really grabs me about your blog, I mean, it's, you, you know, you don't shy away from your opinions about things, but you're also not really, I don't know, I, not argumentative or political about it. Do you want to, well, why don't you just kind of talk about like when you started writing it, you said you were talking a lot about big tech back in the early days and then how it's evolved over time. Well, uh, first let me talk about the non-argumentative part. Mm -hmm, sure. Like, it so happens that I've lived under different systems and different governments and different isms. And my own observation is that people more or less behave, behave similarly as far as say psychological trends and what drives people. So the talking points may vary greatly and may be the opposite of each other, but the fervor and the psychological drive struck me as extremely similar. Therefore, fairly early in life, I have resolve to not really paying attention to isms and talking points and paying more attention to the feeling mm -hmm. and the person that I'm talking to and the subjectivity and the emotion that's driving them. Because oftentimes people can say, I mean, like they want to kill people like you, but then they'll give you a cup of tea and like share cookies with you. I mean, it's right. right. So <laughs> I, I really, it, it was kind of a combination of just what happened naturally and also conscious effort to focus on each person and, take subjectivity uh, as a primary thing comparing to whatever isms or whatever ideology or politics they subscribe to. And I have learned without much trying actually to get along with about everybody as far as the ideological spectrum, because I think that most people are sincere. I mean, granted there are people who intentionally create systems of lies and systems of domination and systems mm -hmm. that are genuinely destructive. But the number of those who do it on purpose in cold blood I think it's very small. Like most people just, you know, they do whatever they feel. They feel hurt. They feel insecure. They feel offended. They feel whatever. It's like the whole generational thing. So it's much easier and more productive, in my opinion, to address that and to talk to each person rather than, oh, you said this, you said that, or whatever isn't you're, like, you're attaching yourself to. So that was a pretty strong choice on my part. I mean, I'm, I believe in that passion. But I believe that that mm -hmm. is more productive, at least in my experience, than all those divisions. And then as far as the trajectory of researching big tech, well, it started with, I'm a musician, right? So musicians and other creative professionals were one of the first ones that were eaten by the Googles of the world because the 
tech companies, they moved in, they grabbed the market, they convinced everybody that quote unquote information should be free. And they framed it in a, such a genius marketing way right. that it's hard to argue with the fact that, yes, of course, I want to have access to knowledge. Like that's natural, right? And if I'm a poor student and I want to pirate music, then you know, I'm, I'm poor, I'm entitled to it, right? I mean, those greedy labels, blah, blah, blah. But the funny thing is that that was all manufactured narrative. And most people don't even realize that because tech companies have been at it for, you know, over two decades. They have this, I mean, they've lobbied and they've bullied and they've bribed academics and, you know, cultural figures and the things that we assume are just a naturally developing cultural narrative or how people feel, there's so much work put into that. And I would have no idea about it if I weren't personally impacted. So as a musician, I got involved in musicians' rights activism and that led me to researching big tech and that led me to researching transhumanism. And so I've done that for, I don't know, seven years, eight years, longer. I mean, I don't know. So mm. I've been reading and writing about all those things. And of course, as you research, uh, big tech theology and their uh, AI godhead, which was actually an actual AI religion that was registered as a religion a few years ago by one of the Google people. So as you research that and you look at it and it's like batshit crazy, it's absolutely insane, but they're so confident as they talk about it and they have so many funders. And I guess people like to believe in fairy tales and there's just so much funding around it and so much through funding cultural power but then again you know I wrote about it and I was appalled but I wrote about it in a manner of you know conversation over a glass of wine like this is awful hope like that might actually become uh, come to the forefront one day but one day after my lifetime one day so I was kind of like forewarning into the far future that right. this is this can happen and then when last year happened I was like what the fuck like all those things that were supposed to happen after my lifetime. Like, what are you? Are you kidding me? So that was one of the reasons why when I started seeing all those health response measures, I was like, I'm very sorry, but that is not a response. Like, whatever it is, it is not a response. I mean, people can argue about many things around it, and they do, and that's that's fair because you know we cannot know anything, and things evolve, and there's always new information. That's all fair, but that was not a response. So that led me to writing about and being vocal. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, uh, th there's a lot there to unpack. We could spend the rest of the interview talking about each one of those topics. So I want to go back to this, um, this choice that you made about writing from this point of view of, of um, feelings and su subjectivity. Because it really comes across in your writing. And it's actually, um, it was very refreshing to me to start to get to know your work and to kind of like feel that out of your writing like it's so i mean you're saying some pretty radical things some things that would create conflict you know if you're coming at it from an ism perspective but the way that you approach it from this emotional place um it's i think it's really powerful and it, it really evades that kind of that kind of conflict like it's very clear that you care in your writing and even though again like what you're saying may be considered controversial or very political it's hard to argue with what you're saying because you know you, you've come at it from i mean the solutions are always about love and about healing 
Um, so I guess, you know, maybe just go into that a little bit more further. I think uh, I was listening to your interview, like with uh, um, Mark Crispin Miller, and you guys were talking about the divide and conquer technique that the isms mm-hmm. really present like yeah. that. And that's just it, like getting into these conflicts when when you approach uh, having these kinds of arguments from from that perspective. But when you take the ism out of it and you put it into a into this human framework, um, it, it just, again, very refreshing for me to read and very, very non-controversial, uh, non-controversial in a way, but also very clear what your message is. Well, I guess. I genuinely do feel that love because I think we as human beings fuck up massively, all of us. Right. And <laughs> that is just how it is. <laughs> and that is one of the best modes of learning. Like hopefully there's not much to not too much havoc happening as we fuck up, but that is just how it things work. Yeah. So having done a lot of that, I am kind of I feel humble because. You know, sometimes I feel I have better clarity or all those things. And it might be true or not. I mean, like, I hope it's true. But at the same time, I think that the point is not to bring people from point A to point B that is scholastic, as in, okay, this is wrong, and we're not going to do it this way because it's wrong. And in some cases, again, like, I'm building this 300,000 million layer tower here. So in some cases, if your house is literally on fire, probably there's not too much time for, you know, debate. Yeah, right. But, I mean, existentially, you can argue, but for all pra- practical purposes. But hopefully when things are on fire, people also think quicker. But in most cases, if something is, say, existentially correct, even in the sense that it's love and it's collaboration and harmony and all those things, but you cannot force somebody to be loving or to be understanding. And if you just force somebody to follow a certain behavioral pattern by force, theoretically, from, from the brain, right. it's like you're not really accomplishing the why we're here because that's about something mysterious and internal and everybody deserves and is fully entitled to walking their path however they wish from the inside. And then again, there's no formula. It's a very complex dance. That It's an extremely complex dance that I think as a human being, we can only get some idea about. We cannot really like fully understand it or describe it because there's so many people, so many entities, so many different desires, so many different trajectories. And we just kind of carve out our path and we do our things from the inside and we try to dance with others in the best possible way we can think of in each moment. Mm-hmm. And there's zero formula about it. And of course, if somebody's going at us, you know, uh, with a tractor, with a brick or with a gun, all those things, it's, it's important to think fast and to protect and to do all those like quick things, quick protection. But beyond that, it's like, I mean, we are in a, such a mess culturally and globally with everything that happens environmentally, even without any transhumanism, which is its own, you know, kind of warmth. But we are in a very messy situation, how we handle the nature, how we handle each other, how it's messy. We can't just say, okay, here we are. And tomorrow by force of rules, we're going to be in a better situation. So how it works. So to me, it's important to understand the beauty of the entire thing as in, Yes, we're fucking up massively, collectively, right now, like really badly. 
And yes, I absolutely pray for the kindest resolution and the kindest learning process. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, from my heart of the hearts, I want it for everybody and for myself and for everybody in the kindest, kindest way. But it also has to make sense existentially. You cannot just like yell at people. And so I don't know if it makes sense why I tried. Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, you, you again, coming up with so many good points there. I mean, this idea of learning from our mistakes as opposed to this kind of scholastic learning that we've all been taught from school and, and the way that people want to do it. They, and then they want to argue and debate until you come to the right decision. But really, it's like, how do we learn? We do learn by making mistakes and then, you know, slowly changing uh, our behavior until we can kind of like, you know, flow with the energy. As you said, everybody's got to be able to walk their own path. I mean, that's something that's Again, going back to my uh, my point about uh, not having principles, I guess maybe I was talking about that off camera, but we were talking about how uh, people seem to have lost the, the the principles of giving people the freedom to walk their own path, actually, uh, here in the United States and around the world. And they're giving the government uh, more and more power to make these choices that should be personal choices. Um and, and one of those principles for me is that notion that you have to respect that others are, are walking that path and, and that's their path. And I'm not here to impose my will or my belief on somebody else. You know, I'm here to be humble, as you say, because I've made enough of my own mistakes to know that that's the only approach that really, you know, that really works or has value. I mean, um, and and then allowing people to learn from their own mistakes and just maybe uh, hopefully, you know, providing a good example or providing, you know, other opinions that like, maybe this will work for you better than the way you're doing things now, instead of this, you know, constantly feeling like we've got to impose on other people uh, what we believe would be best for everyone or for them or for whatever. And that it's something that's really um, come into my mind in this last year and a half of the coronavirus that, that people's health uh, is really a personal decision and how they deal with it. And the system or the government, the, the corporate government, uh, public-private partnership, as I describe it, uh, has really taken upon itself this feeling that they can just tell people what to do. And they say that it's for the good of community. Um, and I try to remind people that what's good for the community is to let people you know, uh, make their own choices for themselves. Uh, but it's, it's just become very complicated in the last year and a half, because they people do use this argument that it's better for everyone to, to do what you're told, essentially, instead of the notion that is actually better for everyone to allow people to follow their own path. Uh, has that been your observation as well? Oh, well, as far as the government imposing measures people no i haven't noticed that yeah <laughs> right. that was yeah yeah <laughs> i know <laughs> but but i think well i thought about this topic a lot um not only in the sense that you know we, we, you just mentioned what, what government does to people and to, to the communities but also in the individual sense i've been observing for instance why i in the past and hopefully in the past, because I'm really trying not to do that, like I'm trying. Uh, why would I want to impose on others in a sense that, like, I think it's correct for you, therefore do that. Oftentimes right. it's fear-based. So when this feeling of fear is so big that you think that 
by their incorrect choices, they're really going to mess up my life. That is where self-preservation kicks in. And I think this is the logic that the whoever has been uh, manufacturing that state in culture have been using. I mean, I think that is the logic. Because if you are terrified for your well-being and for your life, honestly, like a lot of theoretical principles just go out of the window because we are then in preservation mode. And in, in theory, you can justify the fact that if, if everything exactly how the mainstream narrative tells us it is, which is, you know, I'm not even... Right. <laughs> but if it were exactly like they say they are, and then you could see the inner logic in that. Like if certain people are just selfish or whatever, and... But again, the problem is that things are not like what they're saying. And therefore, that extreme fear mode mm -hmm. has been manufactured. So it's not really based in reality, despite the fact that there has been a lot of suffering, despite the fact that, you know, like, yes, people were dying. And I'm actually right now writing an article about what's happening in the hospitals and like all those things. But what they did was so genius in terms of manufacturing public opinion because when you bombard a regular human being with messages of fear and death and disease 24-7 for months on and on and on and on and on it's very hard to not go for that unless you have a really strong incentive to not believe that and that was a very cruel thing to do on behalf of whoever manufactured that Right. but I can't blame again I I, I don't blame the people who are, you know, who went for that because that's the easiest and the most natural thing to do. And therefore, going back to what you were talking about, love, like the way I feel about it is I think that whoever has gotten clarity earlier, it's on us to carry that message with love because by just yelling, you know, you idiot, you brainwashed idiot, you sheep. I mean, like, <laughs> right. like when has in history such messaging convinced anybody of anything. It just doesn't work, even for practical purposes. But also from the standpoint of relating, it's not like there's any human being who has not fucked up majorly at some point or like made wrong decisions or were misled by some bad emotion or you know emotion that was not helping them. That's just, again, human experience. Yeah. So, but I think one of the most important things we can do internally and then try to kind of spread that externally is training ourselves to never act on fear because sometimes things can be scary. And even now with everything going on with all the totalitarian things, I mean, it is scary as fuck. However, I think that if we go into the fear mode, then all is lost. It's like, then what? Right. So, yeah, one of the big red flags for me right at the beginning. I mean, right at the beginning, I was like, oh, there's this unknown virus or whatever that that's coming on and we don't really know very much about it. And to me, you know, the proper thing for the leadership, the government leadership to do at that point would be to calm people down. You know, we don't know that much about it. It could be benign. We're working on finding out some treatments. You know, people shouldn't be freaking out. Don't worry about it. I mean, right that to me would be the appropriate messaging at the beginning. <laughs> and instead we got, you know, months of absolute fear mongering, which just as you're describing, 
is just triggering people. I mean, it's shutting down their, their critical thinking capacity, their ability to really analyze what's going on. And it's triggering them into, you know, this fight or flight mode where they're going to do whatever they're told, really. I mean, I, and I, unfortunately, you know, think this is all part of the program, right? I mean, I think that they use fear to manipulate the vast majority of people. And it's so unfortunate. And it, it kind of goes back to, again, this is why I love your approach so much. Uh, even when you're debating people, you can trigger them into this mode. Like when you're debating their ideology, like you were discussing, then people are getting triggered into that fight or flight place. And then they're, and then they're fighting with you and they're scared that they're going to lose, or they're scared that they're, you know, you're attacking their, their personally or their individuality. And, um, and it's this triggering mechanism psychologically that, that I think we, as people that are trying to uh, open other people's minds, uh, or at least present them with information that may be counter to the, to the narrative, to the mainstream narrative uh, that might be different from what people are used to hearing, we have to actually be aware that we don't put people in that fight or flight mode, that we, that we maintain, that we keep them comfortable, you know, and calm and, um, and just have conversations from this place of love so that they don't get triggered. You're not getting into a fight and then it's going to go nowhere. Right. I mean, I just see it happening all over the place, these fights that happen and then they never get resolved. Oh, well, that is very observant. A lot of that is happening. And it's definitely not a very easy flight. I try to do that, but I have kind of decided that there will be many cases where I can do absolutely nothing. I mean, like if people want to believe whatever they want to believe, they're entitled to it. There's Mm -hmm. nothing about it. I can do, and it's kind of, again, in the moment, case by case. So you just feel it out. If I sense that there's some room for communication and then I try. And if I feel like there's none, then I don't and I kind of forget about it because life is supposed to be beautiful and it can be and in many ways it is. So force twisting everybody's arms is, I don't think it's a very pleasant way to spend our time if we can't do that especially. So, and plus, I think respecting other people's souls is important. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, like, it's, it seems so obvious that they're not seeing the basic logic and all those things. I mean, like, it's obvious, but then again, people are not rational creatures. Like, we're not, like, we're not supposed to be rational creatures, I think. We're yeah. not creatures. Yeah. And it's... I think, well, maybe it's social media culture. Maybe it's Western consumerist culture, like instant gratification. But we've been tricked into thinking that if something is correct, then it's impossible to find a solution that is in one second. And then we'll immediately see the results. But it's not how life works. Like sometimes maybe you tell somebody something. Maybe, I don't know, you tell a stranger your opinion, they'll think you're an idiot, and in 10 years, they'll be like, oh, that was right. Right. <laughs> and we'll never get to know about it. It's like, you know, like life is very, very mysterious that way. So I think the ambition that we can have is to be our best selves and to be our best loving selves, not theoretically, not from some kind of like nonsense, kumbaya, theoretical, intellectual thing, but just from the heart. So don't be afraid. And then leave everything to the universe and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to kind of like actually make that evolution within myself. I've, I've always been one who thought that that reason, you know, at least it should be able to change, you know, it should be able to change people in a positive way. Like I can, if I can just convince you, you know, and I can make the the smarter argument or, you know, the, have the, the better sourced material or whatever, it's just ingrained in my training. I studied philosophy in school, you know, I studied history. And so I know how to do that kind of research, but, um, especially in the last year and a half, I've really gravitated towards learning about philosophy. I mean, about psychology more and more, because it seems like the psychology aspect to what's going on here is way more important. And I'm I'm 100% coming to the conclusion that human beings really are emotional creatures. And when we get into this rational place, we're separating from that organic part of ourselves. I mean, probably one of the biggest issues with our culture today is that people don't have respect for the the emotional side of themselves. I mean, and it's something that's been repressed, I think, for so long, even that people have a hard time understanding how to express themselves emotionally. And then there seems to be a lot of healing that needs to be done. And you talk about healing quite a bit in your work as well. I mean, the emotional healing that needs to be done. So people uh, are balanced enough emotionally to, to, you know, make, make decisions based on their feelings that are, um, you know, that, that have a certain awareness that aren't based in fear, but are based in, in love. Right. So they can make good choices instead of choices out of fear. Um, do you know where I'm going? You hear what I'm saying about no, no, this? Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, well, again, it is such a complicated, complicated topic altogether. Yeah. Because you can't force healing on somebody really. Right. And like in some cases you just leave people alone and that's the best you can do. And such a dance. It really is such a dance. Right. And on the one hand, we are in such a time where, one would think that it's really important to you know, forewarn everybody and say, okay, this is coming, this is horrible. And all that is objectively true. Like what's being attempted is absolutely horrendous and unprecedented and awful. But at the same time, it feels like it could be a place where we're pressured to wake up to that emotional something that's inside us. Mm-hmm. I think that even that situation with transhumanist reform can really be in earnest counted or resolved by coming to our senses and fixing our relationships and fixing how we deal with people around us that have nothing to do with any transhumanism. It's just through that, through that energy, I think we would actually be closer to healing of the grander transhumanism, the reform and all that nonsense situation. Yeah. Well, you know, my theory anyway. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, people have to learn how to, how to communicate with the actual other human beings around them. I mean, so much of life can, you can get trapped in your head and it, it becomes this theoretical world that doesn't even really exist. And you're not, and then you're, you know, you're separating yourself from those emotional connections from the people that are closest to you and families become emotionally unhealthy and then communities become emotionally unhealthy. And then we end up in a, a situation like we're in right now. Right. I mean, I think so. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, gosh, it's so, I think it's so hard because so many of us, I mean, the way, and people who listen to this show will know, you know, I talk a lot about like patriarchal 
systems or patriarchal consciousness, you know, versus more matriarchal or more partnership ways of organizing society. And, you know, and then like using yin yang, you can think of it yin yang too, where, you know, the, the rational or logical has taken so much precedence in our culture over the, the emotional and to, to get people to like realize that their feeling self is actually where the action is. Like, this is where life happens. Like this rational self that we all think is who we are. Like a lot of people identify with their thoughts, right? Um, And they're not really connected to themselves emotionally, but it's just a delusional world really. And I think that's where, you know, maybe this is a complex conversation to have. So, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll make some progress here, but I want to get through some of these ideas with you because you, you know, you write, you write about them so well in your work and it's such an important topic to like be able to figure out how to discuss, but um, because people are focusing on their rational selves, they're, you know, they're getting, they're self-identifying with their isms and their ideologies and all of these other things. And they're not connected with the emotional self, which is, which is what needs to happen. And then what you said about people, I I had uh, a friend of mine one time, tell me something that just always stuck with me that you, you can't be healed unless you want to be healed. Right. And how many people are living in denial, like they're identifying with that rational self. They don't see how out of balance their their emotional self is, and they're not. They're unwilling to go there. They just can't even see it. So, it's that's part of the challenge. It takes a lot of patience to to really actually help somebody heal on that emotional level. I think because so many people want to avoid that part of themselves. You know that that needs that emotional work. Do you find the same thing, you know, kind of know where I'm going? I think so. Well, I think when it comes to helping people, uh, if we can only heal people strictly around us or help them heal, that will be a major accomplishment of life. Yeah, yeah. Because I think also people around us are around us for a reason, and maybe we have something to offer each other in terms of education or lessons or you know, regardless of whether it feels completely harmonious, like in each moment or not, there, there could be something there. And uh, yeah, it is it is complex. I mean, there really is not much, not many clever words I can use to describe that situation because you've pretty much described it. Like it's complex and it's challenging. And I think that life really happens very much in the immediate, in our bodies, in our relationships, and in our feelings. And there's nothing wrong with rational per se if it is at the service of, you know, harmony inside. Or, you know, as they say, put your mind at the service of your heart. Right, Mind right. and rationality, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful tool. Like, logical thinking is a beautiful tool. It definitely has its uses. Yeah. But unfortunately, going at somebody who dis- disagrees with, but have you seen this study? Like, that doesn't really do much. Right. <laughs> so, like, you know, so I think we're, we're, we're intended to use our emotions and our rational thinking in harmony, and that's where good things happen. But getting there, again, first of all, one has to figure it out internally and continue learning and continue maintaining and then learning how to deal with people who seem more broken and then do it, do it with patience and do it with love. And mm-hmm. that's a lifelong, you know, program of hard work. 
and like hopefully there's also a lot of joy along the process right (laughs) (laughs) hopefully not too many mistakes yeah (laughs) well um it's been helping me to think about things in terms of of like this emotional healing because i think that a lot of the people that um you know i have disagreements with certainly around what's happening now with the pandemic and everything and the people that are really getting uh aggro about uh wanting people to get vaccinated you put a Uh a blog post out just the other day about the you know the vermin we're starting to hear these these words that where the fascism is really coming out where the people who are unvaccinated are the vermin and they need to be you know oppressed or put into camps or i mean it's it's beginning it sounds like as you mentioned in your blog post like the language of genocide um, and so it's easy to get, you know, really upset at the people that are promoting this kind of, these kinds of concepts. And I mean, and I am, I mean, I am upset with the people in leadership positions that are, that are pushing this. I mean, those people, uh, who are in leadership positions have taken the responsibility, um, you know, to be there and to lead the people. And when I hear things like I did last week, where it was the pandemic of the unvaccinated over and over again, and the president was saying the pandemic of the unvaccinated and the vice president was saying it, and it was completely not true. Uh, You know, I looked it up, I'll I'll cite the study, right? (laughs) Uh, It was a study from uh, last April, uh, out of a hospital system in Ohio, and most of the data was collected before many people were were vaccinated at all. So it had nothing to do with what's happening in the last couple of months. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the the leaders are saying these things, and I do blame the leadership when they start to use that language because, as you described, that is the language of genocide. When you start, I mean, you're asking the up uh, the rest of the population to literally attack the other part of the population or be afraid of the other part of the population, that's when you're getting into really dangerous territory. But long story short, to make my point, the people that are, that are being influenced by that kind of propaganda, to me, I'm realizing more and more that they have actually been, uh, emotionally traumatized. Like all of this is about fear and this fear-based thinking and, and the people that are just listening to the leadership when they start spewing this nonsense uh, and and then are becoming afraid, they're becoming afraid because their emotions aren't grounded, their feelings aren't imbalanced. They've had some post-traumatic stress that is causing them to get triggered into this other place. And so when we're dealing with you know our friends or neighbors or family members that are getting into uh, you know, this fear-based model and are listening to all of this kind of language from the leadership. Uh, I just, I think it's so important to have compassion. Um, I think it's the, it's just the only angle we can't get into a fight with these people. It's not going to work. It's not going to help. It just perpetuates the cycle of violence. We've got to somehow figure out a way, you know, to approach this, uh, that can perpet- that can, that can help to heal those people in our lives that are being affected by by this propaganda so negatively. Well, I think here's where close relationships really come to the forefront because it's pretty hard to influence people who are not a part of your immediate circle. I mean, they have no reason to really care about what you have to say. Mm-hmm. And if they have a strong emotional belief, then it is what it is. So with people close to us, we have some leeway and they may listen to us and gradually like come out of that spell but 
I am also upset about this whole trajectory, obviously, because when they're talking about camps and uh, I was just watching a video that in, in which I forget the, this, this person's name, but he did a kind of people in the street video where he was pretending to have people sign a petition to arrest the anti-vaxxers. Mm. And some people were signing it and they were like, yeah, that's what you have to do. And right. I was like, wow, <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, but, that's crazy. But then I'm thinking about, like, for instance, I observed that in the Soviet Union, there was a distinct difference between different generations and how they were impacted by the, their media and the government of each period, of time period. So, for instance, the generation of my grandparents who were born right after the uh, revolution of 1917, they were raised entirely by that culture, like in, mm -hmm. in that entirety. That's what their schools, that they were, teachers at school were telling them. That's what the textbooks were telling them. They were raised entirely by, well, literal communist ideology, right? And that's in no regard to isms. That's just literally what it was. So, and then they went through war and then the post-war. And they also, lots of them uh, moved from villages where there was this communal warmth. You know, it has its you right. know, goods and bads, but overall, like coming from the familiar family, rural community, they moved into cities and they went through this whole alienation cold process. They, they were really harsh people, and especially the war, the experience of the war. Absolutely. So many of them talked, they were like, this person should be shot. Like, I mean, they, they talk like that, like every day. So would they actually, at that time, which was long after the war, would they actually go and shoot somebody? Probably not. But they were extremely harsh. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they were hearty. They were strong people. They were, like, they were hardworking. They were extremely admirable and wonderful and kind in so many ways. So... I do separate a little bit the talk from, and it's entirely possible that that person who just disgustingly signed the petition to jail the anti-vaxxers, which appalls me in every possible way. Obviously, I mean, I'm appalled, but then it's possible that they went back to their grandchildren and I don't know, gave them their last cookie. So people are complex, right? which is not to say that I'm not concerned about it. Again, I'm appalled in every possible way that this is even happening or discussed or like that I have to think about it. And I think actually everybody with a heart, regardless of their medical choices, should be gravely concerned about it because as you mentioned, it is the rhetoric of genocide. And let's hope it never goes this way and it stays with like shallow Western people who just talk, talk, talk. But it's not, it, it is alarming. And it is appalling and it is utterly, utterly disgusting. Yeah. But then how you deal with that, I think, again, reasoning with people you know and kind of, I forget I forget the guy's name, but there was this guy who was black and who went into the Ku Klux Klan and he one by one converted them. Right. I've heard of him. Yeah. I mean, that's my hero. Right. Totally. Like, not everybody has that kind of like patience and love and strength and courage and uh, gut mm -hmm. but I think that that is applicable essentially because if you go and talk to people who are harsh based on fear ideas insecurity their environment and if one by one you spend time you talk to them and you talk to them while you know respecting their soul generally 
Like you might think the ideas are batshit and they are, but you talk to them as, you know, human being to human being, and then they will eventually maybe see that you're not a monster, right? So very, very complex. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick station break here in the middle of this interview to uh, let you all know that this is where I made the cut for the free version of The Shift. Uh, if you're interested in seeing the whole thing, uh, please contemplate becoming a subscriber for only six bucks a month. You can get the audio version uh, of the extended interview that you're listening to right now. Go to www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe, uh, and you will have access not just to the uh, full-length versions of all my episodes, uh, but also uh, I've just started a Facebook group for members only, so you can uh, have contact with me full-time as well as uh, other members of the shift uh, so it's a pretty good opportunity if you want the full-length video versions uh, of all my interviews i have them posted on rockfin which you can join for just 9.99 a month go to rockfin.com look up the shift with doug mckinty you can subscribe from there uh, and for your membership to rockfin you also get access to premium content from hundreds of other uh, content providers so uh, that's a pretty good deal so you should think about doing that all right thanks everybody uh, and please think about supporting the show take care yeah i mean well, you're making incredible points. I mean, I think I've been doing this uh, uh, series called The Psychology of Lockdown, and we've been taking uh, family systems therapy from psychology and then mm -hmm. applying it to the way the government is acting. But I think the same, you know, again, coming to that realization that the it's the government corporate, I like to call it the government corporate complex, like, and, right. and, it, and then it's all controlled by these very wealthy people who are promoting transhumanism, like you're saying, and, and what do they have in common? It's like, they are these very controlling people. And the way they're treating us is as if we were in an abusive relationship. It's like a, being, you know, having an abusive father figure in your, in your family. And, mm -hmm. um, and learning about the psychology of this and understanding the controlling behavior that's behind this, that does, I mean, I think it comes from an absence of empathy, right? And feeling and emotion about the family members or the community members. But you're making this great point that it says as much about the community or the family that they're putting up with this behavior as it does about the controlling person that's Im imposing the abuse. And I love it kind of what you were talking about goes back to what we were discussing earlier about learning from our mistakes, right? If we don't set boundaries against this kind of abusive behavior, then we're making a mistake. And the more we make this mistake, guess what? The more we're going to suffer for it, right? Until we figure it out. I mean, this is the thing. I, I think that that's a great way of, of actually looking at it, that people in the community have to see it as a like a dysfunctional family or a dysfunctional mm -hmm. community issue. Uh, and again, you know, going back to this, they argue that it's, oh, you got to get the vax, the vaccine mandates for the good of the community. It's like, no, actually, what's a, a healthy community is one that doesn't put up with this bullshit, you know, that doesn't, exactly. that doesn't take abuse. Um, so that's a great, it's just a great perspective on the whole thing. And I think, and that's what I wanted to touch on. Like, I mean, I know it's interesting because it's hard to make the connection between like, this kind of controlling behavior. And then the actual, like you're, you're reducing humanity when you take out that, that level of empathy or that respect for people's emotions. 
you're reducing humanity to a machine, like treating a person like they're a robot already. Like it doesn't matter, might as well just build a robot. And they and then they imagine they can build a, a robot that works better than the human machine that they don't, you know, they don't care about. It's not about, it's so, it's so wild. Um, that addiction to control that really causes people to reduce others into this robot form, you know, rather than respecting that that spiritual form, that organic soul that uh, e- e- creates that individual, you know, that individual that deserves respect and autonomy uh, and compassion. So, and they try to pretend that they create people. I think, I mean, like the whole uh, trajectory where it's going is a world that actually can never exist. But the idea of it is that they can manufacture people and birth machines in a way. Right. When, we are there's no fundamental difference between biological life and what they think as uh, think of as machine life yeah but if you go back to the origins of pre-transhumanism transhumanism right like for example frederick taylor and the ideology of uh, taylorism mm. so uh for anybody anybody who doesn't know so frederick taylor uh was the founding father of systems management and the whole thing with Ford's factories and mass manufacturers cars on the uh, on the conveyor that came from the research and work by Frederick Taylor and so the idea was that what what what, what Taylor did at some point he just hired some people and he observed what they were doing as they were manufacturing like whatever they were manufacturing and then he broke whatever they were doing into small tasks and he figured out ways how to optimize every task and this way he kind of turned the workers into robots and the workers were pissed they did not like it right <laughs> but, uh, the productivity of factory of factories increased it just went through the roof so the factory owners obviously embraced that methodology of scientific management because that was working better and then we kind of faced that uh dilemma of what's efficiency who does efficiency serve and what's the trade-off and what's the balance of priorities because for instance okay so efficiency allows us to make a lot more of something quicker okay who is it good for like is it good for everybody who participates in which case great or is it only good for whoever owns the factory yeah and if for the sake of serving that one person's ideas or profits or whatever if we existentially accept that it's okay to do that, that in order to serve more of that thing quicker, in order to sell more of that thing at, you know, make more money for that particular person. So if we accept that existential okay to do that at the price of people losing their creativity mm-hmm. and people being squeezed for time. Actually, at some point I wrote this article that's called Speed Up. And it has to do with, well, the conveyor in the literal sense of it and how it worked, but also how we're squeezed for time right now and how many of our choices are determined by the fact that they're constantly sped up. Like we don't have the luxury of just taking the time and be in awe of the flower or the sky or any of those things. That is, that's just like normal human existence, right? Take your time to admire the beauty without worrying about five hundred meetings that you have to attend right right so that incredible speed up 
it actually impacting how we think, how we feel, but it was initiated by a combination of greed, ignorance, lack of balance. Because again, if it can be done in a healthy manner, like everybody benefits. Like we have this nice tool and everybody likes using it and it's pleasurable and everybody, and we make more things, great, fantastic, awesome. But if it is at the expense of creativity, whereas say a craftsman making a table, that's mm -hmm. artistry, right? He may take a week to make one table or a month and he's enjoying every moment of it. And it's like almost none of that moment is work because he's enjoying it, right? So it's like he's making this table, he's selling it, and then he didn't have actually have to work in it in the sense of like suffering, right? Because it was enjoyable. But then you put that craftsman on the conveyor, he's a nothing, he's an ant. You can say Robert, but there's no creativity in there. So his life from that point on is misery. Yeah. So yeah. and that movement psychological way decide it's okay to do that. It's okay for the sake of whatever. It's okay to exercise control over other people to the effect of turning their life into misery and to the effect of stealing their spark and stealing the magic of their life that I haven't created. It's not mine, but I'm going to take it away. So I think that is where the existential root of it lies. And it has been expressed in many ways culturally and Right now, it just so happens that the technology is utterly insane and it's extremely powerful and those nanotechnologies and what they're doing, the smart, I mean, like all of that is just insane. Right. But the principle started before all those terrible technologies. The principle says that it's okay to exercise domination over that person to the effect of stealing the mystery of their life and their creativity and their enjoyment and the relationship that they have with the universe on their own terms. So again, it boils down to that not owning people and they're allowed to do things in their own terms. And again, for instance, if we look at the older society, then in an older society, the elder would be entitled to, you know, telling younger people you know, what, what's right or if they made a mistake. But then the assumption is that the elder person really comes from a place of spiritual understanding, genuinely, like no bullshit, not pretending but genuinely trying to be in harmony with the spiritual world and do what's right spiritually. That's a very different standpoint of, oh, I just decided it's a wonderful idea that you, you, know, you have to believe in God this way or work with your hands in a particular way. That's, that's two universes. It's different. And on the surface, it may seem like it's the same thing because somebody, one person telling the other what to do. But in essence, it's entirely different, like fundamentally different. And that difference might have been lost or maybe we have lost that culture of doing things from a spiritual place. But like to me personally, I think again, the way out of it is trying with the most sincerity to really do things from a place that is spiritually healthy. And it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean having any idea what you are doing. It just means be really, really determined to do things that are spiritually honest and healthy and actually, you know, like praying to your ancestors, to, you know, however you believe, whatever your religion is, to God, to nature, to your ancestors, you know, we're all different. We all have different systems of beliefs, but do it with uttermost sincerity and uttermost determination to actually do things right. 
and just you know be guided about how to do things right because it's often very very difficult to know so i think this is the way that the transhumanists are kind of leading us toward in a very twisted way because yeah. at some point it's going to be impossible to avoid well i mean this is just the thing right you know and i love the way that you're describing it because i think transhumanism is that that anti-spiritual philosophy that humans are just cogs in in a machine that are to be used for uh, essentially the pleasure or the profit of just the few people at the top who can who are the controllers or the controlling class. And then what you talked about with like Taylorism or Fordism, and people are really like being reduced, completely alienated from their own craftsmanship, and reduced to just one part on the assembly line. And just having, I mean, we've lived with this now for 120 years, um, you know, a few generations who have really been living in this world where we just get a job and we do, you know, we do this one thing every day over and over again, and we don't get to express ourselves creatively and we don't get to, um, we don't get to manufacture a complete product that is a that is a reflection of our own artistry and our own craftsmanship. And I think, like I'm I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking the opposite of this is to live in a world where everybody gets to be an artist, right? You find out what you're passionate about, and then you create. And what you create, you get to trade with other people, and they get instead of the, you know, cardboard plasterboard table that you're getting from walmart that you screw together and it lasts for a couple of years if you move it too much it's going to break you know you get a family heirloom table that's going to be in your family for a couple hundred years right and it's going to get passed down from generation to generation because it was built by a craftsman by an artist who knew what they were doing and who cared about the product that they were putting forth and we should live in a world where that's the norm you know where everybody has really nice stuff (laughs) Because that stuff was made with love instead of this garbage, this consumerist garbage that we've been fed um, by that are created by people working on an assembly line that are totally alienated uh, from their true selves. And, uh, I, you know, it's just amazing. It's amazing that, I mean, these are the, it's like, this is the yin and the yang of it, right? I mean, you've got the transhumanist turn everybody into a machine on one, on one side and then you've got, you know, the organic artist, the craftsman on the other side, these two completely different ways of looking at the world. And we've just pushed ourselves so far in this one direction in the last hundred years or so, a couple hundred years, you know, maybe. I mean, ar- arguably, it's been kind of building towards this for, for quite some time. But certainly, it's just it's only been in the last couple of generations where these transhumanists have really developed this whole thing where they're applying, you know, not just not just on the at the job level where everybody's working the conveyor belt but but on the social level where they're applying social engineering and the propaganda is just hurting everyone you're not you know people aren't thinking for themselves anymore they're not thinking with their hearts uh they're just like trapped in this machine world and they're allowing themselves to be controlled it's difficult to to kind of parse you know the differences in the philosophy when you start talking about like what is the, the machine world and what is the organic, you know, what is it that the transhumanists are, are taking from us really? What have they been taking from us and our families for, for now, for these generations, you know, what's going on that we're worshiping this rational mind 
And we're allowing the world to be like crafted separate from our organic selves, separate from the natural world, right? Um, and we just need to start being able to like imagine that that other world, that spiritual world into existence, you know? And so, I mean, we're getting, you know, we're getting past an hour and a half here with the last uh, bit of time that we have left. I wanted to finish up with, I know, because you've written a couple of times in, in a couple of your blog posts that what is happening right now, I mean, this seems to be like an end game for these transhumanist guys. And, you know, as you were talking about, my God, we're learning about this nanotechnology, we're learning about this graphene oxide that can theoretically be implemented. They've been, I mean, they've been right. studying how to get this stuff in our bodies and then they can use radio waves and frequencies to control our thoughts. I mean, it sounds so sci-fi, but you look it up and you find out that billions right. and billions and billions of dollars have been spent on this technology. This is what humanities we're letting these guys work towards, you know, if we continue on this path. Um, and so it, it does appear that we're getting towards this end game where either we're going to let this happen or we can all learn from our mistakes, right? And not let ourselves get pushed around. Um, so how do you see this playing out? I mean, do you see uh, an awakening able to happen here? Because, you know, I think that the, I, you know, to me, the more and more they push, like the more the, they're almost playing their cards, right? They're playing their hand. And uh, I, we can be optimistic, too, that people are going to see what's going on here in, in the next year or so. Well, I think it's really hard to predict. It's one of those situations where, well, I mean, you asked me just a tiny question, like, how do you think it's going to work out? Right. I think it's impossible <laughs> to say, but I think that the deciding factor is whether we're able to put our hearts, I mean, our, our minds at the service of our hearts. And I cannot take credit for this quote. I mean, like, that's... A quote from some indigenous elders so but i think that really as lofty as it sounds that's what it is and it is an extremely non-glamorous process hmm. so as far as see all those things are so horrifying because if you think about just nanoparticles alone and like how do we clean up this pollution even if we decide it's a bad thing i mean god help us right it's yeah really it's unthinkable. I think that nature is extremely powerful and strong and maybe she'll come up with mechanisms. And that's our best hope. If That is if we get our senses together, hopefully. And a part of me hopes that because they squeeze so hard, it'll wake people up. Yeah. Another part of me observes that as they squeeze, people just get squeezed more. Hmm. And I think we need a lot of prayer, like honest, because I don't think it's a situation that we can resolve on our own. Even no matter how smart we are, no matter how strong we are, I think from just a human perspective, it's kind of unresolvable. So I think that it really, we have to remember our ancestors and to think about what the ancestors who we love the most, who we trust the most, what they would do and and pray and just really 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 try to not do do anything out of fear and do everything out of love yeah and we can hope that it will lead to something good and it will lead to a solution and so 
No, no, no answer. I'm sorry, but I think that I mean, like, that's honest. That's sure possible. To it's impossible to decide what's going to happen. Of right. course, I hope that they're just bluffing, and that is the hope. At the same time, I'm thinking they almost like almost like they are probably in disbelief of how lucky they are that people are just going along. So it's like right. they just tried, and people are just going along. Like, oh my god, <laughs> but. Again, I think it's up up to us to try to wake up to our courage and do everything with love and pray. Yeah, I almost wonder if, uh, I mean, I do hear you. Like, you can't really predict it. I like to think that one day I'm going to wake up and people are going to throw the shackles off and they're going to realize that, you know, these, these guys have been lying to them and they don't really care about them. And, um, and we're going to be able to really decentralize power and really get the power back into the hands of the communities and the families. Um, but it is, uh, I, you know, life doesn't work out the way you want it. <laughs> and I am starting to think too, I mean, there's a third option besides just like everybody's going to wake up or everybody's going to, you know, become a slave, which is almost like this um, segmentation of society right. where some of us, I mean, I know a lot of people are talking about moving out into the woods, you know, and starting sustainable communities. And those of us that, you know, just don't or have had enough of the machine right. uh, can go figure out how to live a lifestyle, you know, that's a little bit closer to nature and maybe be far enough out of the, of the whole game, you know, that they won't mess with us, that they'll, people will be in the cities, you know, and those in the city, they're going to be in the smart cities and they're going to be, you know, on the, on the blockchain, getting the UBI and, and, uh, and just, you know, following the program. Uh, but, you know, some of us are still going to be able to, to manage to be out in the, in the wilderness, uh, farming our own food, you know, raising some animals, making it work. Um, and that may be a more realistic uh, vision of the future um, that, we're just going to kind of separate and hopefully, you know, the, those of us living in the woods are going to keep the, keep that spiritual flame alive right, and pass it down to the next generation and keep on, keep on trucking. Well, hopefully I think again, it is so complex and so hard to predict. I have a feeling, well, specifically in this country, it feels so much like Soviet Union falling apart uh -huh. just on the purely sensory level. It feels so similar. So I'm thinking, I don't know if this country is going to stay together. Like, is it going to separate, you know, depending on the ideology? Like, yeah. honestly, that part, I don't care. Because either way, I mean, like, either way, as long as people stay alive and, like, relatively healthy, I mean, formalities are less important. But it just feels like total decay of the empire. And it makes me sad because I actually do like this place with all its imperfections. It's, you know, yeah. where I am. But it is amazing. I mean, the stuff that's happening now, like this level of censorship, uh, it's something I never would have thought would happen here. Um, I mean, the level of control. And I don't know, you know, I've actually questioned myself, have I just become more aware? I mean, you know, back when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, and I mean, they were clearly still pulling this stuff, I think about 9-11. And like, well, I mean, they they had the structure in place to pump the propaganda, the, the lead up to the Iraq war was very similar in terms of the lies that they told to convince people to go, 
to go into Iraq in 2003. So, um, you know, maybe it's always been here. Maybe the empire has always been, been stronger. And, and it was, it was just me who thought, and I think a lot of Americans, in fact, uh, it's almost like the propaganda here is so good because we have the propaganda tells us that we have free speech and that we have, you know, this, this, uh, uh, free press and, and it's so hard for Americans to, to, go, wait a minute, you know, actually that's not true. We don't live in this society, but again, they're playing their hand. The more they censor, the more they push, yeah, hopefully the more people are going to figure it out. Um, but it is so interesting. It's like, they're going to assume so many people here in the United States are going to assume that they're free because that's what they've always been told until they're not, you know? And I mean, I would, I would argue that that happened I mean, definitely, I feel like when the state of emergency was called in your state and the governor became a dictator, then your freedom was lost. So that was a year and a half ago now. And they're, you know, they're continuing to do that. And I was blown away at that time that Americans didn't stand up and that we, you know, we didn't have a conversation when we lost the right of freedom of assembly. Right? Oh, so I don't well, know. I think, well, before that, there were a few forbidden topics that you could not talk about and keep your job at the same time. But it was a very narrow. I mean, like there were just a few topics. Yeah. And I think people could even talk about the pharma industry. Like a decade ago, it was okay. Now, right. all of a sudden, the pharma industry is our best friend and our savior, despite their history and billions of dollars they paid in fines for doing exactly what the crazy conspiracy theorists are saying to, today they're doing. But you know, it's no longer acceptable. So I think you're right. A lot changed in the past year and a half. I mean, that's obvious. But it was building up for sure. Well, Tessa, I think we're probably bumping up on time. We've definitely gone over the 90-minute mark and we're getting close to two hours. So we should probably wrap it up. I'd love to keep talking to you, but uh, alas, our time has come to an end. Um, well, thank you, as everything does. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It was a great joy to talk to you. Yeah, and and likewise. Um, I mean that that approach uh, to your work, and I just can't recommend it enough. Do you want to let people know, you know, any kind of final thoughts and, and the and the website uh, that you want to send people to so they can check out all of your work because it, it it really is um, that subjective approach that we discussed at the beginning is is so refreshing, and uh, I think it's actually really important that people uh, check out your point of view. Well, thank you. Well, the easiest way uh, to find my latest work is Tessa, T-E-S-S-A, on Substack. So it would be tessa.substack.com. And if you Google Tessa fights robots, then you'll find me somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and on Twitter, I am Tessa Makes Love. And yeah, that's, that's that. And I have a Telegram channel that is in a very baby face. I kind of just started putting things up there. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds great. And thanks again for the conversation. And again, thanks for, thanks for your work. I mean, I think if people check it out, they'll, they'll see what I'm talking about instantly uh, about your style. And again, it's just so refreshing to hear that like non-confrontational, that emotions based, but also still, still straightforward and talking about very controversial uh, topics uh, and still, you know, clearly setting your boundaries about uh, what you believe and what you don't believe in, um, but doing so in a way that is very, 
non-confrontational and, and it's just it's people need to learn how to communicate more in that way in that good way because it really does touch people in the heart it gets more into that emotional self and it gets people out of their head which uh you know as this whole conversation has been about is so important and and i hope that um you know communities and and families and you know this whole entire culture can make that transition because because thinking with your heart and not with your head uh, i think we'd see a, a major shift happen in the world so thanks again and i'll let people know that you've been listening to the shift i'm your host doug mckenty and you can check out all my stuff uh, at www.theshiftnow.com i'm getting to where i have quite a bit of material if you click on the free content tab uh, i've got a lot of stuff going on right now um, the Psychology of Lockdown series. Uh, I've been working on a, a COVID-specific news show, The Facts and the Fiction. So I'm getting a lot of information out right now. Uh, and you can find me on social media. My personal page uh, on Facebook is actually kind of the one that gets the most traction. So that's just Doug McKinty. Uh, and you can look up The Shift with Doug McKinty on lots of, of other sites. I've been um, promoting my Odyssey site a lot more lately because YouTube is being YouTube and I got a couple strikes. So going on Odyssey. Uh, I also have a, a Telegram channel at The Shift with Doug McKinty and I am at D McKinty on Twitter. So thanks everybody for listening. And, and thank you so much, Tessa, for coming on. And thanks for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. You I'll bet. You. Take care. Bye. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, there was my conversation with Tessa Lena. Um, and it was a wonderful conversation to have. I uh, wanted to have her on. I wanted to have this kind of complex conversation, and I hope we pulled it off, uh, about what it means to be human. Because she does such a great job on her blog of writing in a style that you really feel connected to what she's talking about. It's not the typical argumentative style uh, that I hear and read, you know, every day from everybody else, right? There's something so unique about it, and I wanted to flesh that out. And especially, you know, her whole concept about fighting the robot, right? I mean, what does that mean to fight the machine? It was kind of a, a, an esoteric conversation, but it's one that really needs to be happening during this time of the COVID lockdowns, uh, of the Great Reset, and everything that's going on right now. I mean, we're starting to to get more and more of an understanding of the, you know, the Internet of Bodies, uh, you know, the Internet of Things, just how much control the kind of technology that, uh, the, you know, governments, corporations have been working on for decades now is starting to come to this forefront. 5G is starting to put so much of this stuff online that it feels like we're starting to be a part of some kind of science fiction movie where if we don't stand up for our humanity and what it means to actually be an organic living human being, uh, you know, apparently these people have plans to just plug us into the Borg like some kind of Star Trek story. Um, and it, it's literally out there. I mean, I, I read things on the internet like you all do, I'm sure. <laughs> and I think this has got to be crazy. There's no way this is true. You start looking it up. Well, there's the patents. Uh, there's the peer-reviewed studies that show how, you know, they're learning how to use this graphene oxide, get it into our bodies, and then they can uh, start to control our emotions with electromagnetic fields and that they've been working on this stuff for, for decades. Um, I mean, there's a whole other conversation to be had about who decides what technology to work on? Like, who are these people that decide this is what the government is going to spend billions of dollars through the DARPA program working on, right? Um, 
I mean, that's a conversation that needs to be had. Why do we or our politicians even allow them to work on this stuff, much less watch it come to fruition, watch it, uh, you know, get uh, um, signed off for civilian use uh, and then uh, basically imposed on us without even our understanding or knowledge? Um, but as we get closer and closer to recognizing exactly the links that this kind of technology is is being designed to turn us more and more into a robot, uh, I think we need to have these conversations like I just had with Tessa about what it really means to be human, uh, what it means to be an organic living human thing with individual bodily autonomy and the ability to make choices for ourselves, to have connection with nature that you see behind me. Uh, I mean, these are really important concepts that we need to, to flush out, even though they are kind of difficult conversations to have. So I just want to send a big thank you out to Tessa uh, for being willing to have this one with me. Uh, I don't think my, my questions were... My questions were kind of vague because it's it's such an overarching concept, but she did a great job of being able to kind of understand where I was headed with this, and some of the things she talked about really hit home. Um, you know, just talking about really as an artist, I think she has this per perspective that we all need to start having, right? That emotions are primary. I mean, so much of us in this Western culture and this patriarchal culture have been raised to believe that everybody's got to think logically and we've all got to have these logical debates. We barely even understand how to deal with each other on a feeling level anymore. We're already being divorced from our humanity through this kind of psychological conditioning that teaches us that logic and reason is more important than how we feel about the people who are in our lives. And, you know, that's the great thing about the way Tessa writes. I mean, she writes with the understanding that how we're feeling about the people that we're interacting in our daily lives is way more important than, you know, winning that debate uh, between the Republican or the Democrat sitting across from you at that Thanksgiving dinner table with your family, right? Um, and we've got to understand and take this on. And something I didn't talk about with her, but it really makes me think about, is it's interesting that from my understanding, the patriarchal religions always separate good and evil, right? And then this allows the authority to say, I represent the good. We've seen that quite a bit in the last 18 months, right? And a lot of the alkalites of the authority saying, well, you must be selfish if you're not doing what the authority says because the authority is telling you to do what's good for the community, et cetera, et cetera. This is the age-old argument. And when you separate good and evil, very, very often it's on the good side is, you know, we have access to the truth, to the knowledge, to the logic, to the reason this has given us the truth, you know, uh, you see that in the, in the whole scientism movement today. And then on the flip side of that, well, emotions are just crazy, you know, they're, they're, uh, we can't predict them and we don't understand how they work. And, and so in patriarchal culture, this is what we get indoctrinated into all the time, right? On the one hand, it's logic and critical thinking are, are crucially important uh, and our feelings are simply repressed and ignored. Uh, we bypass all of that and we just do what our logical mind thinks. But in more matriarchal or partnership cultures within their mythologies, you know, I think about yin-yang in Taoism and things like that, the traditional, uh, the traditional paths uh, that come from pre-colonized or uncolonized cultures today, they always talk about balance. It's not that logic and critical thinking is unimportant, but it is that 
it's not more important than your emotional self and how you feel about life and how you feel about the people around you. And this balance is what's so crucially important. And that is what comes out for me in Tessa's work. She's really able to say, look, how we feel about each other is important. It's at least as important as how well we think about, uh, you know, the technocrats or the transhumanists or the fascists or our political beliefs or the left-right paradigm or, or whatever, or the solutions to the world problems. I mean, maybe the solution is exactly within her messaging itself. Like it is that we just start caring about how we feel about each other. And that's the revolution, right? <laughs> uh, and just kind of be able to put aside like this logical, this critical thinking and this perspective. Again, not to say, and if you go and you read Tessa's stuff, you know, clearly she's a very intelligent woman and clearly she's applying critical thinking to everything that she's doing, but she's doing so in this wonderful balance and this dance that understands that the emotional side of things is at least as important. I mean, in this day and age, you know, I think healing that emotional side, that is the way that we fight the robots, right? That's the way that we get out of the machine world. And I and I loved her description of how that machine world has really affected all of us. She got into the, the, the idea of Taylorism, uh, which was kind of the precursor to Fordism, who Henry Ford was influenced by to create that conveyor belt mentality where we as human beings are no longer... Uh, artisans, right? We're not create. there's not somebody that's making your shoes, you know, a leather craftsman. There's not somebody that's building your table, uh, who's going to build you this table that could be a family heirloom that could last for literally for generations. And that, yeah, you, you know, you're going to pay more for that. And that craftsman is going to live a great middle-class life. And you're going to have a table that is a family heirloom that's going to last for generations. Uh, and that table is going to be an expression of the of the soul and the artistry that that individual put into making it. Instead, uh, we're telling that craftsman, that person who inside their soul wants to be a, a woodsmith. And we're saying, here, go work at the factory. Here's your part of the assembly line where you take the little peg and you stick it in the little hole. And then the next guy down the line is going to put the little leg into the little table thing. This is just completely alienating. And when she started getting into that, it really just clicked for me that it's like, this is exactly what we need to turn around. We have got to get into a world where efficiency is less important than craftsmanship. Because it, it maybe it takes time. But we actually have the technology in this day and age to create a world where everyone should be an artist. Everyone should be a craftsman and no one should be alienated into having to work some crappy job. It's only because we've created this hierarchy where consumerism, uh, I mean, I, you know, you know the whole drill, right? Uh, where where uh, the people that own the means of production are at the top, where everything is mass produced. I mean, we just need to, the way I see it, we need to decentralize everything. We need to decentralize power. We need to decentralize economic power. We need to decentralize government power into the city level, into your community level. And ultimately, we need to have respect on the individual level for bodily autonomy so that we're not just slaves to the machine. And that is the message that comes through to me 
when I read Tessa's work. So I just want to thank her again for coming on. I hope that she had a good time. Uh, again, I, I felt like my questions were um, a little bit vague. I didn't quite understand how we were going to get this point across, but her answers um, really did did a great job of, of expressing that difference in humanness. Um, one of the other things that she mentioned was that human beings, you know, we fuck up a lot. <laughs> and I think it's one of the things that even attracts the, the transhumanist crowd or the scientism crowd to think that we can transcend this organic body and we don't make mistakes anymore, right? The robots don't make mistakes. They always do everything right all the time. The, the flip side of that philosophy, the organic side, is to welcome our mistakes. And I've heard this from my friends uh, in Lakota ceremony, and I've heard this from my Tai Chi teachers over, over the years, that making mistakes is the natural state of humanity. And learning from our mistakes to be better people, that's how we grow as human beings. And so instead of thinking of ourselves as having original sin, never being perfect, and then trying to create a world filled with robots that never make a mistake, it's so important, I think, that we start to honor our mistakes as giving us a sign to show us how to move forward. Like, right? Like we honor our suffering. I made a mistake. I got hurt by that mistake, and I'm going to grow as a human being. So Tessa, Tessa brought up that point as well, another super important aspect of what it means to be human that separates us from what it means to be machine, right? So again, thank her. I want to thank her so much for coming on. I want to thank her for her work, and I really urge all of you to just check it out. Um, www.tessa.substack.com is where you can go to see all of her blogs and her and and check out that narrative style that I'm talking about. Uh, she's not bl bl uh, placing blame. She's not shaming anybody. She's not angry. She's not upset. She really comes from a good place. Uh, and 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 yet, what she's talking about is, you know, all of this important information, all of this important political information that typically causes people to get into these kinds of arguments. But, you know, I feel like her. The way that she presents is so soft, you know, to argue against it is almost, it just doesn't even make any sense, right? <laughs> so I think i think you have to read it to, to find out what I'm talking about, and I hope you do visit her blog at tessa.substack.com. And for all of her work, uh, including you can get a good taste of her, of her music, and she's done some killer music in the past. Uh, she's worked with uh, people like Ian McDonald of uh, King Crimson. Um, and uh, she's got a lot of great stuff that are posted uh, at her website, www.tessafightsrobots.com. So you can get kind of the big picture of everything that she does, not just uh, her writing, but also her music and some of her performance art and other things at uh, tessafightsrobots.com. So thanks again, Tessa, for coming on. Thanks all of you for listening. You can find out more from The Shift with Doug McKenty at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, and I'll send you uh, every couple of weeks all of the different podcasts I'm doing now and all of the, everything that I'm producing out of Doug McKinty Studios. Uh, you can also please think about subscribing. Uh, you get the long form, the full form interviews, the feature length interviews of The Shift. I do give a lot of stuff out, a lot of this content out for free, so for six bucks a month uh, on the website. If you subscribe, you can really help me out. Uh, also, you can go to rockfin.com, look up The Shift with Doug McKenzie and subscribe to Rockfin from there. You get all of my long-form videos in, in video content. 
not just audio, but um, you also get access to a lot of other content from a lot of other uh, content creators there on Rockfin. So check that out. Uh, again, www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, and I want to thank everybody uh, for coming on the show. Uh, my next guest is going to be uh, agorist Sal Mayweather. So stay tuned for that coming out probably first thing next week. Uh, I'm looking forward to that kind of a old school. We're going to talk old school agorism. So uh, it gets uh, it gets to to the bottom of my heart with uh, the libertarianism kind of kicked off my whole awakening process. Uh, and I know a lot of you out there as well. So uh, we'll be talking about uh, kind of talking about libertarian party history, but in an anti-libertarian way, because uh, the agorists always stand up uh, against even participating in the political system. So I'm going to really enjoy that one. Anyway, thanks again, everybody, for checking this out. And we'll see you uh, very, very shortly coming up soon. Take care.